Good morning, congregation. You're going, where's Pastor Micah? Well, he was scheduled to preach this morning on the second Advent Sunday, but a few days ago, he contacted me and was not feeling well. And he went to be tested and the results still not known as of this morning. So I'll continue to pray for our brother Micah here. I later contacted Pastor Luke and uh, as he has been out of town on vacation and just returned yesterday, and I said that if I woke up feeling ill, <laughs> you'll be called last minute. And uh, but I praise God that I'm I'm not ill, and as I preach this morning. Well, last week our missionary we support Shannon Hurley began our Advent season stating emphatically that Jesus is king. Jesus is, is king because he, he is the one with authority. He's the one in authority. And I appreciate him noting the word authority because it implies that there is an author, one who has created all things in order to rightly claim authority over all things. And if you did not hear this message or his family's testimony um, during the training hour last week, may I encourage you to listen online and from our website. When I spoke with Micah, I asked him about what was the next theme he was going to focus on during this Advent season. And he mentioned that he wanted to build on what Shannon preached and to look at Jesus as the King of Kings. That expression, King of Kings, is referring to Christ as stated twice in the, in the book of Revelation. You find that in Revelation 17, 14 and in 19, 16. And once by the Apostle Paul in 1 Timothy chapter 6, verses 15. I was fascinated to learn that this expression by Paul is the second time in this letter to Timothy where he expresses high praise to Jesus in this manner. And so this morning, we will look at Paul's earlier expression of praise, that Jesus is king of the ages, or, or some of you have your translation as king eternal. But before we do that, join with me as I lead us in a word of prayer and just asking for God's help during this time together. Our Heavenly Father, we gather now to contemplate the magnificence of your word that declares Jesus king of the ages. May the words of my mouth reflect your truth as revealed in the scriptures. And may we respond in humble adoration. This means that you must wean out the distractions in our minds, the cares of this world that takes our eyes of faith away from King Jesus. Please cause us to be attentive to your word at this time, in this hour, that we may behold you and respond in worship and celebration in communion later this morning. Lord, help us now. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I'd like to open us with a question. And that is, you know, during this Advent season, what compels, what compels men to give treasures to
to, I was thinking of the three wise men, you know, giving treasures at the birth, soon after the birth of Christ, men, wise men from the East, or, or some, you know, what compels men to give of their time, their talents, their very lives to a leader or to one whom they admire respect? See, I grew up in a, a Japanese home where allegiance and loyalty was strongly impressed upon me. A few days ago, one of my brothers sent me an article about the testimony of a former kamikaze pilot who was preparing to give his life sacrificially by flying his plane into an American ship, naval ship, in the hope of sinking a ship and taking many lives with him. He was apart, depart the, um, from the runway when news broke out that the Emperor of Japan announced the country's surrender, thus ending the war. You know, for many Americans, the thought of giving your life on a suicidal mission was unthinkable. But for many people around the world, including in Japan at the time, was that there is a mentality of, of giving up your life, your dreams, your, uh, your wants for the sake of a collected whole. In the case, at that time, it was for the emperor and the nation of Japan. That mentality of allegiance is found in every culture, though. And it can be for evil, can be misguided, certainly was there, such as that kamikaze pilot. But it can be for good as well. I think of the loyalty of the four young men in the book of Daniel. You know the stories there in Daniel 1, in Daniel 2, in Daniel 3, and in Daniel 6. You see young men called and tested their allegiance. Whom will they serve? I think of Esther chapter 4, or Rahab in Joshua 2, or Ruth, whereby each of these women were tested of their allegiance, their loyalty. Several weeks ago, we remember the former Martin Luther facing the test of allegiance there. And his allegiance, you recall, was to the scriptures. That his allegiance was to the God who wrote the scriptures and his allegiance was to the word of God. You know, today the church is faced with these challenges and they will continually mount. Obey God or man and government officials on worship. And each of you, mark my words, each of you will be tested in the future of where your allegiance is directed or to whom will you trust? What will be your source of truth, your hope, your confidence? Open your copy of God's word and turn to 1 Timothy chapter 1. I want to read six profound verses that the apostle seeks to instill in a young pastor named Timothy. Let me lead us in reading in 1 Timothy chapter 1, verses 12 through 17. Paul writes, I thank him 
who has given me strength, Christ Jesus our Lord, because he judged me faithful, appointing me to his service. Though formerly I was a blasphemer, persecutor, and insolent opponent, but I received mercy because I had acted ignorantly in unbelief. And the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost. But I receive mercy for this reason, that in me, as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. And then Paul makes this declaration here in verse 17. To the king of the ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, to be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. You know, why does Paul write this form of praise in the beginning of this letter to, in 1 Timothy? He closes this letter echoing this praise as well in this letter. And he says later at the end of, in chapter 6, verse 15 and following that, he who is the blessed and only sovereign, the King of kings and the Lord of lords, who alone has immortality, who dwells in inapproachable light, whom no one has ever seen or can see, to him be honor and eternal dominion. Amen. You know, this morning, I want to answer, why is Jesus king of the ages? So that, listen, so that you may prepare your heart this Advent season. But let me give you the context. I want to give you the context of why Paul wrote this letter and specifically these verses. You know, the Apostle Paul was released from his first Roman imprisonment and he travels to Ephesus. And Timothy there joins him and Paul instructs Timothy to remain there in Ephesus. He writes there in verse 3. And as the pastor, he needs to remain there to be the pastor of that local church. And this letter is a leadership manual for Timothy while Paul travels on to Macedonia. And Paul tells Timothy right from the beginning of this letter that his allegiance to Christ will be tested by combating false teaching. You find that there in verse 3 to 11. It's really a test of what verse 5 describes as love from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. And Paul reflects upon God's grace on his life, verses 12 through 16, what we're going to look at. And he gives his response of praise and worship. But Timothy is tested here. He, Paul is saying that there's going to be testings within, within the church. There are people who are going to compete with other ideas, contrary to what the gospel has been proclaimed to him. And that's no different today. For all of us. So again, why this pause that Timothy, in the middle of instructing your son in the faith, to burst out in worship? Paul states three important reasons. And may I encourage you 
to take notes to assessing this of your own life. Number one, Paul writes, recognize that God is the giver of all good things, even when we are rebellious at heart. I appreciated both Pastor Luke and uh, Brother Steve just in, just in calling to worship. We are ones who are rebellious at heart, but God is the giver of all good things, even when we are rebellious. Even as you enter this room, I know many of you are entering rebelliously in your heart, maybe not here showing at church, but your mind is distracted. You're turning away. But starting in verse 12, Paul's so overwhelmed. He says, I thank him who has given me strength. Who? Christ Jesus our Lord. Why did he do this? He judged me faithful. What did he do? He appointed me to his service. Paul's just like overwhelmed thinking that, you mean God is still good even when I'm wicked, when I'm in rebellion. And all of you can attest to that, that God is still good to you. He's the giver of all good things. In other words, God who created who sustained and upheld Paul, gave him strength and the ability to experience life even when he was undeserving. The fact that Paul was living and having already suffered in prison, yet Paul tells Timothy that his past life was filled with rebellion against God. He says there in verse 13, he says, though formerly I was a blasphemer, persecutor, an insolent opponent. In other words, I blasphemed. I, I spoke irreverent of God. I persecuted other Christians. I was a violent aggressor. Despite Paul's wickedness, he recognized that God is still, God was and is and will be still the giver of all good things. How did he do that? It says in verse 14, and the grace of our Lord overflow for me with a faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. Not only that, God gave his son by sending him to save men like Paul. Paul writes there to, and reminds Timothy in verse 15 that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. That was his purpose. Timothy, don't forget that. Remember, recognize that, that God is the giver of all good things. So the question for you is, do you personally recognize that God continually gives you life? That he gives you a sound mind? He's given you materially? He's given you physically? He's given you relationally? He has given you intellectually? I could go on and on. You realize that each of us here in this room or watching online, you are the recipient of God's goodness time and time again. Actually, you know what? Actually, I'm, I'm talking to some of the most privileged people on earth. 
since you are not only recipients of material wealth, but spiritual wealth and resources in Christ. You are hearing the word of life and have your own Bible. You have your own word of God and your own translation. And you're able to read and study at your own time, at your own leisure. You know where all those blessings come from? When I say you have the word of God, you also have the spirit of God. You are adopted into God's family. You've been purchased out of the bondage of, of death, of a death sentence, and granted forgiveness and pardon, as well as eternal life. You know, Paul captures it well when he says, even when you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you once walked, or even now are walking, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived. I'm, I'm reading, really, quoting Ephesians 2. Carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy, because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead, in our trespasses. He made us alive. He made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. And he raises up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. So that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. That is our God. We recognize that God is the giver of all good things. I know you go, yeah, 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 I know that. Do you really? Do you really pause and recognize even in this Advent season? I think of Jeremiah, the prophet, who had to remind the people, the nation, of who this God that they worship. You know the people's response, if you know anything about Jeremiah. They responded with just gladness and joy and thanksgiving. Not. No. No. And so God allows judgment to come. But Jeremiah, the prophet, he still describes God's goodness this way. You're familiar with this passage as he write, writes in Lamentations chapter 3. That the steadfast love of the Lord, what? Never, never ceases. His mercies never, never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is his faithfulness. You see, going back now, transport back to Paul here. Paul recognizes that God is the giver of all good things. Even when we, when you and I were rebellious in heart. Number two point, giving a simple outline, one I hope that's just easily digestible. Realize that God is merciful. Realize that God is merciful. Two times Paul writes there in th this phrase, but I received mercy because I acted in ignorantly in unbelief. Paul says this again in verse six, uh, 16 but I received 
mercy. Literally means I was shown mercy. I was mercied. I didn't receive judgment that I deserve as a guilty sinner. Think about that. Paul was such a, he was one who ruthlessly set after people to take them in prison and put to death. He was there when Stephen was put to death in Acts chapter 7. He was there. But Paul was overwhelmed with praise that God withheld. He withheld his judgment that was due to him as one who persecuted Christians with so much hostility. Even to the point that he was persecuting Christ. We read that in Acts 9. Saul, he says, his former name, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Most of you, I trust, most of us here have not persecuted other Christians or a violent aggressor. But did you know that every time that we do or say something that gives others a false representation of Jesus Christ and his holiness. When we falsely represent his authority and we misrepresent the character of God, we commit blasphemy. Think about that. Each of you. Or we use his name in vain. You hear it all the time at work or school or elsewhere, hopefully not here, but, but it's used, his name is used in vain. You act out as if he is not the king. And yet, each of us deserves that wrath of God's wrath and judgment right away. Yet the very fact that we are alive and are able to gather is a testament. It's really a testament of God's mercy on our lives. So for Paul, the combination of I received mercy in verse two, and the grace of our Lord overflow for me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus results in a man who is overcome. He's just overcome with praise. Not only did I receive that mercy that God withheld, but then I've been poured upon grace. And that's why Paul says in verse 15 in this letter that the saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came in the world to save sinners of whom I, I am the foremost. You know, Paul's not boasting about how sinful he is, but he's boasting about how God is so merciful and kind to save one who, humanly speaking, is not salvageable. He's, and, and God gets the glory and honor for his act of mercy. And that's what Paul is trying to communicate to Timothy. When he goes forth of giving instruction, he's laying a foundation for Timothy to understand. In order to be an effective minister of the gospel, you must understand your condition before a holy God, before you can deliver a message of hope. And I have to remind myself, and you too, when you go to talk about Jesus this Advent season, about the coming King, the one who came, 
who gave his life. And he also recognized that he didn't just come as a babe born in a manger, but he came to set me free from my bondage of sin, that I was and I still am one who rebels, who goes against God. But I received mercy. You have received mercy. You know, during the height of the African slave trade, there was a young man, you know, by the name of John Newton. He was raised by a Bible-believing mother, but he rebelled against his mother's teaching and became rebellious against God to the point of becoming a slave ship captain. He once wrote, confessing that, I sinned with a high hand, and I made it my study to tempt and seduce others. In other words, he lived such a wicked life until he began reading and hearing about God's mercy on his life. You know the song he wrote, Amazing Grace, how sweet the sound. That what? That saved a what? A wretch like me. Do you carry that kind of attitude? Amazing grace. God was merciful. I once was lost, but now I'm found. Was blind, but now I see. What did he see? He saw through the eyes of faith, I received mercy. And the question for you, do you personally recognize that you are the recipient of mercy every day Every hour, every moment of your existence in light of God's holiness. When a man can say in his heart that God's mercies never comes to an end, one can see with the eyes of faith and echo words of this hymn that, you know, whatever befalls, you have taught me to say, it is well, it is well with my soul. Why? Because I received mercy. Recognize that God is the giver of all good things. Realize that God is merciful. Third, remember that God is still working about his purposes through you. How, you may ask. There in verse 16, but I receive mercy for this reason that in me as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display his perfect Patience as an example to those who are to believe in him for eternal life. Ever wonder if God could ever use you? Or you're just feeling useless? Or not being a good witness to those around you? Ever feel that way? I confess, yes, many a times. But Paul exhorts Timothy that since he was a foremost sinner who received mercy, God is able to turn the least likely people to repent and confess the Lord Jesus, that Jesus is Lord. I think of, I made reference to Daniel earlier, but I think of King Nebuchadnezzar, the po most powerful man at that time. Such a proud, evil, wicked man. But in the book of Daniel, you see there how he 
turned and humbled Nebuchadnezzar's heart. Or I think of the wicked people of Nineveh. Remember the one that the prophet Jonah said, nah, I ain't going there, man. That, those people, are, they, they're wicked. But God calls a man to proclaim the message of God, that God is a God who is the king of the ages. And what, what happens? The people there repent. They turn away. God is able to turn men who have a heart of stone to a heart of flesh. You know, the reason, for, the lesson for us is that it is God who works in you. Remind, you need to remind yourself. It is God who's, work, who's working in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Why? So that Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience. I'm reminded of Paul's words there, that of Philippians chapter 1, that he who began a good work in you, in me, will complete it until the day of Christ Jesus. So none of us, none of us have arrived. None of us are perfect. We still wrestle with our sin and sinners all around us. And we continue to fight the fight of faith. And, and Paul's trying to help Timothy to be, remember that God is still working. He's still on the throne. Even as Shannon brought that up to uh, our attention last week, the king is on his throne. He rules and reigns in the hearts of his people. He rules and reigns despite whatever is coming around our nation, our world, in your community, in your life. He still rules and reigns. But it's humbling to know that, that God is displaying his perfect this, um, patience despite who we are. And so we, we continue to fight the fight of faith, knowing that he's transforming our minds He's, as we confess our sins, he is, and praying for one another that we what, maybe what? Healed. We, we continue, that's why we gather. We need to remind each other. We need to remember and to realize and recognize that God rules. He is the king. And sometimes we just forget. We do. Someone, a neighbor of mine asked me, why do you guys gather? That just seems so irresponsible. And I said, friend, I know a very fact that one day you will die and I will die. But why we gather is because we have hope that Christ has delivered us from this bondage of death. That one day we are, we are just rehearsing for that great celebration that God has delivered us from death, from sin. That's why we gather, to remind one another, to encourage one another, to build one another. That's why we gather. I think of the nation of Israel, historically, of that God's plan, when you read in the Old Testament, and when you see God delivering the people out of exile in Egypt, and promises them to the promised land, 
You see people over and over just rebel or stubborn at heart in unbelief and turn away. And he delivers them and forms a nation and he promises, but the people continue to run in unbelief. And you know, it is with us and, and it's, it's sobering that you, you wonder, is God working? Is God still king? Even right now? Even in our world, when you read, if you follow the news, you're going to go, he doesn't appear to be king. But when we read the scriptures, we remind ourselves, he is, he is the king. Amen? So we must remember and also rejoice that, that our salvation is not dependent upon our example. Though we want to be good examples, but I'm just mindful that it's not dependent on us. So well, how does Paul respond to all this? As he's giving Timothy, recognize that God is the giver. He realized that God is merciful. I said recognize that God is a giver of all good things. Realize that God is merciful. And remember that God is still working. How does Paul respond in all this? And this is where verse 17, that to the king of the ages, immortal, invisible, the only God be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. You know, this is called a, doxo a doxology or a hymn of praise. And it's really kind of an anthem declaring that, uh, of just praising God for his sovereign, sovereign grace. Most translators in, in your Bibles, if, you're, if you have the English Standard Version, you, it says God of the ages. But most other translations says God eternal. But I like the king of the ages because he is king forever and ever and over human history throughout all time. That's why he's the king of the ages. He is king past, present, and future. He's immortal or imperishable. And that means that Jesus is never tired. He never decays. He never changes. He will, he will not perish. He is invisible. No one can see him. But his work is evident in the lives of his children as we see God by faith. When the apostle writes to the king of the angels, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory, Paul's just, as he writes to Timothy, he's just overwhelmed with emotion to think that Jesus Christ Listen to this, that he's overwhelmed thinking Jesus Christ, the only God of the universe who created heaven and earth, who is before all things, and in Christ all things hold together, should come into this world to condescend himself, to be of no reputation, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself, becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross, to save sinners like you and me. That's overwhelming. That's why in a short sentence, Paul's just overwhelmed as he writes to Timothy, whoa, the king of the ages immortal, invisible, the only God. 
And it's fitting, it's honor and glory to him forever and ever. You know, in the New Testament, Jesus Christ has that kingly title and it's recorded several ways. He's the king of Israel. He's the king of the Jews. He's the king of the nations. But Paul writes here that he's the king of kings and the Lord of lords who alone has immortality, who dwells in inapproachable light. He, he, says, that, I, he says that later in chapter 6. He's repeating himself in one sense. Not, not verbatim, but he says later to Timothy at the end of this letter, he says, he is the King of kings and Lord of lords, who alone has immortality, who dwells in inapproachable light, whom no one has ever seen or can see, to, be, to him be honor and eternal dominion. And that same idea, that same thought, is conveyed by the Apostle John, who we find in Revelation, I mentioned before in Revelation 17 and 19. So I'm just reminded that that is Paul's response and I think of um, this quote by John Piper who, who, who puts it well. He says, we're not saved from sin and changed into righteousness for the sake of pride, but it's for the sake of praise. That's why when you think about it, I'm not here pr being proud that I'm a follower of Christ, uh, that you know, it's something to boast about like I did something for God. And it may not be for you either. But it's a time of just, we, we, we just praise God like, wow, God, you are overwhelmingly kind to us and merciful. But my question to you is, so what's your response? What is your response to all this? You know, the Apostle Paul's intentional to exhort Timothy that he is facing the test as a leader in the local church. And he's, he's going to be battling his, in terms of allegiance since he will be under attack by false teachers. And so Paul tells Timothy, this charge I entrust to you, Timothy, my child. And Paul states three wishes there. He says, wage the good warfare, holding the faith and having a good conscience. Paul's, Paul's telling him, and he says this uh, um, earlier in verse 5, that the aim of our charge is love from a pure heart, a good conscience, and a sincere faith. Timothy, you are at a crossroads of responsibility. You received an entrustment. In, to, in today's language, Timothy, there are two types of responses for people growing up in the church and being exposed to the gospel. Either you will fight and hold the faith or you will reject God's entrustment and gift. And that, is the, that applies to all of us here. Either you will embrace this by faith and with gratitude and respond in praise, or you will reject. You will be tested of your allegiance. Mark my words, each of you will be. If not every day you're tested in that way. Um, and so Paul closes this section off and says in verse 19 that by rejecting this, some have made a shipwreck 
shipwreck of their faith. Verse 20, among whom are Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I handed over to Satan, that they may learn not to blaspheme. Listen very carefully what I'm saying. Do you see yourself as a rebel during this Christmas Advent season? What's the downside of not receiving this truth by faith? What happens is that you reject the entrustment, means that you're being handed over to Satan. Everyone who rejects God's kindness through the gospel, you're being handed over to Satan. And number two, you eventually learn not to blaspheme in this life or the next. You will learn not to blaspheme. So as we enter this Advent season, we are tested to what we believe, in whom we believe, and for what reason. You know, we just celebrated Thanksgiving Day, and for many it's a time to give thanks. It, but it's also, let's confess, it's, it's a time of great anxiety. During this Christmas season, we have often looked forward to a time of, in the past, we've often looked forward to a good time of good cheer, celebration, singing, gift exchanges. But today, for many in our world, it's a stark reminder that not all is well. Loneliness, despair, depression are more acute because of losses, we call it, because of COVID, because of broken relationships, because the presence of indwelling sin, may I appeal to you that it does not have to be this way, internally and externally. When we acknowledge God's work of grace, when we acknowledge that and recognize that God has been the giver of all good things, despite my rebellion, that we realize God has been merciful. And that remember that God is still working. If you have declared your allegiance to Christ, God is still working. You want to see changes in your life and you're not seeing it. But he has made that promise. He who began that good work will complete it. So you're, you need to ask yourself, and perhaps take an inventory when you go home, is, when is your allegiance most tested? Is it at work or is it at home? Is it with family? Is it with friends? Why is that important? I, it's important because, as I said, you will be tested. You may be troubled. You may be tried. You may be tempted to defect. You may be even torn apart on all this. But when you are able to, again, recognize, realize, and remember this Advent season becomes much more special, much more brighter. Just knowing that, indeed, Christ is being honored around the world as people from every tribe, every tongue, every nation are declaring the praises of Christ who called them out of darkness into his marvelous light. Christ who is immortal became mortal in order to sympathize with our weakness he knows. He knows our frame. As, as uh, Brother Steve prayed, he knows us through and through. Just read Psalm 139 and you can't escape. God knows you all, through and through. 
but he gave his life that we may receive the gift of salvation and eternal life. He is invisible, but his work is made visible. And so, you know, I'm going to transition here and transition that this day is a time of communion. Um, and as we enter this time of partaking together, if you have not taken one of these, I would invite you to do so. They're out there in the foyer. But I recognize that this is not for everyone. While the invitation to participate and partake is for all of you, but it's for all of you who have placed their trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. If you have not made that declaration, made that profession of faith, that you've repented, recognizing that you are a sinner and you've turned away from your sin and placed your trust on the Lord Jesus Christ, then I would ask that you would refrain from this and partaking. So as I move down here, we participate just out of recalling and celebrating the fact that God sent forth his son because on the night that he was betrayed, he took bread and when he had given thanks, he broke it and, and he said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he took the cup and after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you think, as you drink it, in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So when we gather, if you are not ready, if you have some, if you have not, as I said earlier, if you have not embraced Christ Jesus personally, or if you have an issue with your friends or family, you have an issue of sin that you have not dealt with, may ask you, kindly ask you, that you refrain. It's a, it's a celebratory time, but it's also a sobering time because he did, he did not give his life in vain. He gave it for us that as we humble ourselves before him, we recognize God has been so good to us. Let me lead us here in prayer. Our gracious God and Father, when we think of you are the king of the ages, when we think of how you have been the king even when we didn't recognize you as our king, even before when we were dead in our trespasses and sin. Oh God, you have shown so much mercy. You gave us life. You didn't judge us right then and there. You don't judge us right then and there when we sin daily, but you have shown mercy to us. And so Father, we come together with gratitude right now. Gratitude for your great work by shedding 
Not only your blood that was to pay the penalty, to cover, to atone, but you gave your body broken for us on the cross. Father, we, we want to echo Paul's words of glory and honor be to your name. And so we partake in faith and with much gratitude. And we thank you in Christ's name. Amen. So, it's kind of awkward to say, well, <laughs> pop this lid and partake. But modern technology here, um, we ask that you take this bread and we take as a community, we remember his body. And we recall his blood as we drink together. As I said earlier, we're doing all this in community. That's communion, is, is with the idea of doing it in community. But after participating in this Lord's Supper, how do we respond? You know, after Jesus shared his, the Last Supper, it's recorded there in Matthew and Mark that they sung a hymn, a hymn of praise. You know, singing praises to our glorious King is important. I think of Psalm 47, verse 6 says, Sing praises to God. Sing praises. Sing praises to whom? Our King. Sing praises. For God is the King of all the earth. Sing praises with a psalm. Seth is going to lead us. Seth and the worship team will lead us in Come Thou Long Expected Jesus, born to set us free.